If we want to list every way Spreaker can help podcast publishers, well, we need a podcast of our own. Whether you're in charge of long-running series with extensive backlogs or countless limited series, you can organize and monetize your entire catalog with Spreaker. With Spreaker's customizable publisher plan, you can add collaborators, analyze extensive listener analytics, and even share exclusive content through custom RSS feeds. And that's just for starters. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. It's amazing. You go away for a couple days and you come back. You're what button do I press? How do I turn on the camera? How do do I get the microphone? (laughs) Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. It's my show, by the way. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I did not even have to look at a post-it note to get that. Uh, thank you to Chris Burns on Friday and uh, Alan Sanders yesterday filling in for me, doctor on Friday. Yesterday, we actually had to go to open house orientation for our kids' school. We did decide that it was in their interests and in the interests of our sanity to get our kids back to school, we're happy with the plan our uh, school put away. We're nervous. I mean, we, we're we nervous. When you look at what some of these schools are going through that have opened, uh, we're we're very nervous. But I do think our school uh, has a, a solid plan in place. Interestingly enough, uh, our school, which is a, a private Christian school, was not invited to participate uh, with other private schools in the area to come up with plans. And I think our school actually wound up uh, by itself doing a better job than the other private schools, uh, which some of whom are now scrambling because of the new data that elementary school kids can get the virus. Uh, now putting in uh, mask mandates for down to kindergarten, which I actually am opposed to mask mandates in kindergarten. I think it's too much of a burden on teachers at an elementary school level to be doing stuff like that. Uh, but there you have it. Um, they they will they'll start school later this week, which which is great. Um, they they need to they need the socialization. Our, we talked to our pediatrician about it. We talked to our doctors about it, and and everyone. Uh, fairly well is is convinced there is a path forward to it, but it is very risky. Uh, and I, I want to get into some of that. There's actually good news, though. Let me start with the good news this morning. Uh, the New York Times, I have been following the New York Times data on the virus. Uh, it's not the New York Times data per se. It's just they've got the most comprehensive charts of, of the viral trends in the nation. They put it all together very easily for you to see in one place. And for the first time, for the first time, despite school reopening and the viral spread you've heard about in the media, for the first time, the New York Times has now officially put Georgia onto the list of states where the virus is declining. Uh, it had for a while been on the states where the virus was stable, but is now listed as a place where the virus is declining. That is a good thing. We are headed in the right direction. We'll get to a lot of that later, but before we get to anything else, I'd like to talk about the post office. We'll get to the Planned Parenthood telethon last night uh, that the Democrats held, but before we do, we need to talk about the post office. I have for weeks been telling you about QAnon, uh, that it is a conspiracy on the right uh, among Trump supporters about a deep state conspiracy to undermine the president, to sabotage him. And concurrently, it is a satanic uh, pedophile ring that that is QAnon that the the deep state uh, subsidizes and protects a satanic pedophile ring all while trying to rally the 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 forces of evil to defeat Donald Trump and and only Donald Trump can stand up to it that is essentially 
QAnon. Uh, and every time someone comes forward, Peter Strzok or Elisa Page or now uh, um, Kleinsmith, what's his first name? Kevin Kleinsmith comes forward and uh, takes a plea or admits to having done something wrong. It is further proof that the deep state exists, that the deep state is working together, that it is a collectivist, collectivist movement to undermine the president. And I have maintained all along there are bad people uh, within the within the career uh, selected career civil service. There are people who were holdovers from the Obama administration who transitioned into the uh, civil service, and that they absolutely are out to undermine the president. But it's not some coordinated deep state conspiracy. Some of them get together; they know each other from their tenure in the Obama administration. They plot together to use what little power they have to undermine it. it, it that that's that's what they did. But it's not some organized grand machination of, of satanic pedophiles, as QAnon would have you believe. Now, we're forced to treat more seriously the post office conspiracy because blue check mark Twitter believes it. It is QAnon for the blue check mark crowd. It is just as nutty as QAnon, but members of the media believe it, and so we're forced to have to deal with it. Uh, in ways we don't have to deal with QAnon. Let me explain to you what's happening. The president can't help himself. The president actually tweeted out that in his opposition to mail-in balloting and everything that goes goes on that he's not going to give the post office any more money. Uh, and uh, the Democrats use that as proof. Just just like um, QAnon would use Kleinsmith's guilty plea as proof that QAnon is real, the Democrats are using the president's tweet as proof that the conspiracy to kill the post office is real. It's not. I mean, the president of the United States said Mexico was going to pay for the border wall, and they didn't believe him on that. I don't know why they want to believe him with this. But but, but he's got direct power. He's got direct power. To no, actually, the president doesn't have direct power to do this. The president of the United States uh, cannot actually intervene directly within the post office because it's a quasi-independent agency of the federal government that largely self-funds. And by the way, for all of you who believe that the president wants to actually fundamentally undermine and kill the post office as a way to steal the election, why did he give them $10 billion a few weeks ago? I, I, I realize you haven't heard that. But the president gave them enough money to fully fund all postal service operations to next year. Here's what's actually going on. The Postal Union has been lobbying for $20 billion as a gift from the federal government. The post office is set up to be a fully self-funded operation that the federal government doesn't have to continue giving taxpayer money to. It has never done that and every few years has to go through a bailout. Starting last year, they began to signal that they would need a bailout and that if they didn't get money by the summer of this year, they would collapse. So in April, as part of the last stimulus plan, the federal government gave the, the U.S. Postal Service $10 billion as a loan to get through this year into next year to maintain full operations. The Postal Service Union didn't want it as a loan. They don't want to have to pay back the money. So the Postal Service Union with the Democrats have been able with the, the rise of mail-in balloting to concoct a conspiracy theory to play to members of the press that the president of the United States uh, is uh, he, he's, he's pursuing some conspiracy to destroy the Postal Union and destroy the Postal Service in order to steal the election. 
and that the only way to stop him is to give $20 billion more dollars to the post office through congressional funding. Now, to get that $20 billion, what must happen? Well, Republicans in Congress must appropriate it, and the president must disperse it. And that may happen. But they've already given $10 billion. Now, let me put this in greater perspective for you of why this is not a conspiracy. The president of the United States just gave $10 billion with a B to the post office in the form of a loan. That money will get the post office fully functional and operational through into next year. When December comes, there's this thing called a Christmas card. The post office will this year send more Christmas cards to people than will send mail-in ballots. When you send a When you send a mail-in ballot, you send one ballot for you, maybe one for another voter in your household. When you send Christmas cards, you send multiple Christmas cards. And more people will send Christmas cards to multiple other people at one time in December than people will send mail-in ballots in October and November spread out over a two-month period. And the Postal Service that can handle the Christmas cards will also be able to handle your mail-in ballots. There's no conspiracy here. Now, but people are showing pictures of the post office rounding up mailboxes, mail collection boxes, the big blue boxes. Yes, the post office began doing that aggressively in 2009. Why? Because during the Obama administration, the post office was having a fiscal crisis then. And the Obama administration, Barack Obama himself, favored suspending Saturday delivery of the mail, which wasn't popular with people or the post office. So what the post office decided to do was to trim routes. One of the ways to trim routes was to trim the collection of mail from these postal boxes. And the way to do that was to get rid of the postal boxes that were not used. There are a lot of these boxes that people don't actually put mail into, but the post office has to drive around and check every day to see if there's actually mail. So they've been since 2009 aggressively pulling post office collection boxes in areas where there isn't a lot of mail. Most people have their own private mailbox at their house that they use or a distributed hub mailbox somewhere in their neighborhood. They don't use these blue boxes. And so the post office has been getting rid of them. They've been doing it since even before Barack Obama, but it became organized in the Obama administration era. Now, you're also hearing about the sorting machines, that the post office is getting rid of the sorting machines. Yes, the post office has these massive sorting machines that were built in the 70s and 80s. They're prone to break down and they handle first class mail. They do not handle packages with contracts from Amazon and other the United States Postal Service is handling more packages than they are first-class mail these days, and those packages can't actually be routed through the processing sorting machines. They don't fit. So the post office has been winding down these machines that are prone to break in areas where they've seen a decline in mail, and they've seen a decline in mail. Even during the pandemic, they've seen some level of a decline in mail. That's all it is. By the way, the the curtailing of the sorting machines was done in a plan during the Obama administration, and the Trump administration has been slowly implementing this plan. You know what else part of this plan includes? It's a plan to reduce routing of postal workers. Here's what happens with the post office. Typically, what has happened is you your postal carrier delivers mail in the after in the morning. And someone in the post office sorts all the incoming mail at noon and the postal worker comes back and may go out on a second delivery route that afternoon and deliver afternoon mail. Some areas of the country, believe it or not, get morning and afternoon mail. 
Not every not everywhere does. We don't here where I live in Macon. But in some big cities, you get morning and afternoon mail. The problem with that is it drives up overtime costs because the morning mail deliverer then goes out in the afternoon and, and the mailman delivers afternoon mail as well. And so what the Postal Service decided to do in the Obama administration, and again, it's been being implemented during the Trump administration, is the post office workers who deliver the mail in the morning then go back to the post office and they sort all of the mail that's come in. And then they end their shift. They don't go deliver it a second time. So the mail that comes in in the afternoon gets delivered the next morning. When people talk about postal delays, that's your delay. It may be up to 24 hours. Typically, it's a 12-hour delay. That's it. That, that, that's all it is. And they've been doing this going back to the Obama administration. That, that's all that's going on here. There's, there's no elaborate conspiracy. But, but, but by doing this, mailmen are not getting overtime anymore. And it's become a sore spot with the Postal Union. And so the Postal Union likes the overtime because it also drives up union dues to the post office, among other things. And so they've been collectively bellyaching about this particular issue. All of this has come together with the Trump administration's opposition to mail-in balloting for reasons we've already discussed. As a result, the Postal Union and Democrats have co have combined to create an elaborate conspiracy whereby they claim the President of the United States wants to destroy the post office in order to steal the election. All the President is doing is implementing an Obama administration plan to make the post office more efficient. That's it. It is implausible to believe that the President who just gave the post office $10 billion is somehow now going to sabotage the post office when he has no direct power to do that. Even his postal postmaster general doesn't have the power to do that. The postmaster general cannot slow down the mail. It actually is not possible for the postmaster general to slow down the mail sort of short of firing workers, which he's not doing. All they're doing is implementing the Obama administration plan for greater post office efficiency. That's it. There's no conspiracy here. And yet, if you explain this to people on the left, they fly into a spittle-fueled rage that you're, you're just denying it, that of course the president wants to do that. That's his only way to win. This is no different from the rea reaction to people who believe the QAnon conspiracy theory, that of course this is real and you're denying it. Look at Peter Strzok. Look at look at what happened to Carter Page. Look at, at, at uh, Lisa Page. Look, look, look at all of these people. Look at what they did. C clearly, this is proof of Q QAnon. Jeffrey Epstein and Pizzagate. Look at this. This is proof of a conspiracy theory. I can't believe you can't see it. I'm smarter than you. I can see it. It's the same thing that the Democrats are doing now. I've got to hand it to him. It is a brilliant, brilliantly orchestrated PR maneuver by the Postal Union and by the Democrats. And the media has bought it hook, line, and sinker because they hate the president, so they're prone to want to believe an outrageous conspiracy theory about the president. Remember, at the beginning of the Trump administration, many members of the media actually believed the parody story that the president was tuning into a TV channel of gorillas and watching gorillas on TV, and they actually treated it as a legitimate story. They now treat this as a legitimate story, and it's the same freaking reporters now who believe that then. It is a blue checkmark conspiracy theory, but because these are reporters who have access to televisions and newspapers across the country, we're forced to deal with it in a way we wouldn't have to deal with QAnon, but it makes it no less nutty and no less unhinged, and you should be wary of anyone who believes it.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Friends, y'all missed something. Uh, We we all missed something last night. I I had no desire to um, actually see this last night, but uh, oh my goodness, if you, if you didn't actually pay attention to the democratic convention last night. Well, at the end, even if you did, because all the news networks, they, they turned away at the very end from this sheer bit of geniusness from the democratic party. Uh, y'all, it was just, it was bizarre. It, it was, I mean, the guy, uh, is he wearing a dress? Um, is something, he's got like, t- like I, I don't know. It was just, it make it go away. It was bad. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've got to a- a- acknowledge and confess that it was uh, bourbon and cigar night watching the Braves uh, beat the Washington Nationals. There was there was something uh, poetic about uh, red state Braves at the TP uh, beating the Nationals. I don't know were they in Washington. I, I I don't even remember at this point. I, I think they were. I think they were in Atlanta uh, at the TP, and they um, well they beat them in, in the ninth inning. It just came back and, and destroyed them. And it was wonderful to to see my friends in Washington, D.C., who were pretending to watch the Democratic Convention. And you knew they really weren't by their reaction. They're melting down uh, as the nationals melted down on, on the, the field. It was actually really nice to see. And I, I, I like the nationals. I do. But uh, the Braves and the Cubs are my two teams. And it was, it was nice uh, to actually see the nationals. And, um, I, 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 I gotta tell you, um, it, it, it's just that this whole thing is bizarre watching people who are Democrats praise John Kasich as a conservative. You know, there's this, there's this odd phenomenon. I've run into this with people who, uh, for example, have been offended with me being on, on meet the press. I, I do believe that they complained enough. I haven't been asked back. Um, where it is on the left, they believe that they should be the gatekeepers of who should be allowed to be on television, radio, and in print. Uh, we see this, for example, with the Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times, that uh, it is for some reason the left wants to decide who all the reasonable voices are. Now, my personal rule of thumb is that people on the left should be able to decide who are the reasonable voices on the left, and people on the right should be allowed to decide who are the reasonable voices on the right. And on the left, if you want to hang out with with people like Louis Farrakhan, well, then that should tell us about you. Uh, But for you on the left to be able to say, no, this person isn't a reasonable voice on the right. Well, you don't like anybody on the right unless they tell you what you want to hear. And it's very indicative of their embrace of John Kasich last night at the Democratic National Convention that John Kasich was an acceptable voice. And they want to say, oh, he's a conservative. John Kasich is not a conservative, y'all. John Kasich is to, to conservatism what colonoscopies are to pleasure. 
John Kasich is not a conservative. John Kasich is governor of Ohio, expanded Obamacare in the state. John Kasich is governor of Ohio, uh, expanded government, expanded government spending. John Kasich lost his conservatism uh, at some point when he decided he wanted to be liked by the popular press after he left Fox. And, and you know, if, you, if you're on Fox, you get blackballed by the media and he had to do something. So he became this, I, I don't know, but he's not a conservative. And John Kasich, of course, uh, refused to get out of the Republican uh, race in 2016 until all the conservatives had gone and and clearly was rejected. And only then would he get out. And and his staying in, he helped block a number of conservatives who could have stopped the president. And the media wants to pat him on the back and give him an attaboy. uh, when, When Kasich, he's not a conservative, he's a poser. And the sooner we're done with him in American politics, the better. But they put him on stage at the Democratic convention last night as if he was some embodiment of wise Republicans. And you had members of the media going gaga over it. Oh, he's just so wonderful. Oh, he's so great. No, he's not. And there was a weird juxtaposition in the convention we need to discuss. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, if you'd like to be a part of the program. The Democratic National Convention started last night. It'll run through Thursday uh, when Joe Biden will speak allegedly um, uh, allegedly live, not these pre-recorded speeches. Uh, so, some of these speeches were live last night, a lot of them pre-recorded. Uh, and it, there was just some weird juxtaposition there. Before I get there, I, I want to note that the president has announced a posthumous pardon of Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony uh, was a Republican, and she was a, um, a a women's rights advocate for voting. She was arrested in the late 1800s for attempting to vote or in the early 1900s for attempting to vote, and the president uh, is issuing a complete and full pardon posthumously of Susan B. Anthony uh, for her attempts to vote. I'm sure the media will find a way to criticize it. Just just watch. By the end of the day, they'll criticize it. Now, to the Democratic National Convention, uh, there's just a, a weird, um, weird, weird juxtaposition in last night's Democratic National Convention, and I need to advise you up front that I did not watch it. <laughs> the Braves were on. Um, I, I'm a normal person. Normal people don't watch these things. Uh, and you know, I, I I try to stay more informed than you. So I did have to go back this morning and watch speeches, and it was painful. It was painful. That's why I, I'm on my third pot of, or third cup of large, large uh, Yeti, like giant Yeti tumbler full of coffee uh, just because I had to watch those speeches. Michelle Obama's speech was actually a good speech. She could be the Democratic nominee. It was all an anti-Trump speech, but in forms of delivery and stuff, it, it really shows you what Joe Biden lacks. So, and I'll get there. But there, so there was this weird juxtaposition on stage at the Democratic convention last night. You had John Kasich stand up and tell everyone that uh, Joe Biden is not a radical. He's not a leftist. He's not going to destroy the country. He's not going to to go with the full progressive agenda. And then about an hour later, you've got Bernie Sanders stand up and say, this is Joe Biden's the, the most progressive candidate for president we've ever had. He even bra- He's embraced our agenda. We all need to get on board and support him. So which is it? I mean, it, it generally, if you're choreographing these things, what you do is you 
you put them on separate nights. So you have Bernie Sanders on one night when the Republicans who want to see John Kasich aren't watching. It's, it, it's, it's the most bizarre thing. I, I do have to tell you, I don't believe that the convention matters. Uh, there is some criticism, for example. So uh, Donald Trump is going to have on stage at the Republican convention, Nick Sandman. He was the uh, the student in Kentucky, Con- uh, Covington Catholic Private School, who was slandered by the media at the pro-life march. And he's also going to have on stage the couple from St. Louis who's been harassed by the local district attorney for standing on their lawn in their Brooks Brothers outfits pointing guns at people as they pass by. Uh, it's going to be culture war uh, all the time. And a lot of people say, well, why isn't the president trying to make inroads with people? I mean, Biden's got John Kasich there trying to make the case for Republicans. Why isn't the president doing the same? Well, the president allegedly may have Tulsi Gabbard show up. But the bottom line here is that Americans are making up their minds without the conventions. The conventions this year are kind of a waste of time. And I like the conventions, by the way. I've always kind of been a convention nerd. Uh, it's, there's never any reason to watch the first night of a convention. There's just not. Um, but uh, as as they build up, that they've got theming, and it's just it's interesting to me that the Democratic theming last night was very weird. You begin with Joe Biden's not a radical, and you end with trust us, Joe Biden is a radical. You have Michelle Obama in the middle uh, throwing the red meat out to the crowd, beating up Donald Trump. If you don't think Michelle Obama had an impact last night, she is the lead story on every news website in America today. Even the conservative ones talking about Michelle Obama. Uh, And and what's so interesting and what's so bad uh, for the Democrats is that she genuinely will outshine whatever Joe Biden does on Thursday. And therein lies the problem. Joe Biden has some issues that this convention is highlighting. Joe Biden is refusing to take questions from the press. He's refusing to do large-scale events. He's had a couple of events with Kamala Harris, but not very many. And every, uh, you know, uh, Cody Hall, uh, who's with the governor's office, the governor's press secretary, actually tweeted this out, and I think it's a very wise point from him that because Biden is refusing to do uh, regular events, because Joe Biden is refusing to go out around the country and campaign, uh, refusing to to go out and, and do the things candidates normally do, and refusing to engage with reporters in the way reporters wish to be engaged with, Joe Biden is making every appearance that he does do and every statement he does make of more monumental consequence than if he was out there all the time. I almost wonder, you know, the president had those two interviews with Chris Wallace and Jonathan Swan. And he was assailed for his appearances. His interview with Jonathan Swan for Axios on HBO, the the it is what it is comment about the virus and, and wanting to see the charts and Jonathan's hilarious reaction to the president trying to show him the charts and stuff. Uh, it was widely panned. Even Republicans were unhappy with the president's performance. But then the president went out and said, well, why isn't Joe Biden doing this? Why isn't Joe Biden doing these interviews? You may not like my interview, but I sat down with members of the press who aren't my friends. I sat down with someone other than Sean Hannity. 
I sat down with someone other than Laura Ingram. I sat down with someone from other than OAN. I I, I sat down with Jonathan Swan. I got asked the tough questions. I, got, I sat down with Chris Wallace. Even Chris Wallace is coming out saying, yeah, the president sat down with me and, and Joe Biden won't. That's kind of a tell that there's a problem there. Joe Biden is not able to, unwilling to, uh, it, it's just, it, it's odd. Um, it's it's odd. I don't know. Um, it's just, it, it, this, this is, the, the whole thing is weird that Biden is doing what he's doing. Now, listen, this is a man, let, let's be honest here. Joe Biden is a man who has had, uh, what is it, brain aneurysms in the past? I see that the the president's former doctor, who's I think he's running for Congress now, has come out and said that that does impact his his mental capacity. The Democrats, of course, are livid that the Republicans are doing this, and I would remind them of all the stuff they did to John McCain in 2008, questioning whether or not he was fit to be president given he had been tortured in a prison. What did that do to his mental capacity? And they want to pretend that they never did that. What is a what do, do multiple hemorrhages in your brain do to you mentally? And the Democrats can disparage me and anyone else for pointing this out, but they have for four years been questioning the mental capacity of Donald Trump. Turnabout is fair play here. They may not like it, but turnabout is fair play. So the question becomes, what do you do? The question becomes, how does Joe Biden respond? And Joe Biden's response right now is to hide. Joe Biden's response right now is to avoid taking questions from the press. To the extent Joe Biden has sat down with members of the press, it has been quintessentially friendly interviews. Joe Biden sitting down with someone from MSNBC is like paying a prostitute for a good night. You know you're going to get your money's worth. I mean, Joe Biden uh, getting interviewed on MSNBC, could they ask him tougher questions, Mr. Biden, one ply or two ply toilet paper, which is it? And he still manages to throw out an absurd answer. Why are you asking me about ply? What is ply? Are, are you implying something you drugged out junkie? I mean, that, that's that's what Biden does. I mean, you, you put him on MSNBC where the question is basically, I, I, I can't even get into it. It's pornographic, the interviews with the people on MSNBC. I mean, you almost have to pay like a subscription service to be able to see these interviews and not look at the squiggly lines. It's Skinamax on MSNBC with these Joe Biden interviews. Mr. Biden, can you breathe a little heavier for us, please? Mr. Biden, can we see the sweat glistening off your forehead? Please, sir, please, can we have another? I mean, that's what these interviews are on MSNBC. It's embarrassing. They should be embarrassed, but they're not because they love Biden and they hate Trump. They are broken. And so you you have these Biden interviews out there, and even those, Biden says the most outlandish stuff. So you can't put him with a regular reporter. You can't put, listen, put Jonathan Swan and Joe Biden together, and let's see what the interview is. Biden will say outlandish stuff. You put him with Chris Wallace, he's going to talk himself in circles and fall off a cliff. And it's very telling. The man they think is more qualified than Trump to be president of the United States is essentially in a witness protection program when it comes to reporter questions. That's a problem for the Democrats. 
It's a problem for the Democrats that they know Michelle Biden on stage last night at the Democratic convention uh, was was better than what Joe Biden will be on Thursday. She was more dynamic. She was more charismatic. She had people who aren't Democrats like the speech because they don't particularly care for the president. And and they were willing to go along uh, with her speech. The whole thing was just bizarre. And yet there you have it. That's what's going on here. And the Democrats are going to have to find a way to, to do this. Now, what is the Democratic strategy? They actually do have a strategy to deal with this, and that is to rely on the good grace of the media. See, it's not even a secret at this point. I was about to say the dirty little secret, but it's dirty, but it's no secret. You all know it. The Democrats are completely in the tank for Joe Biden. The Democrats are completely in the tank on this. On CNN last night, uh, you've got Al Gore allowed to spread conspiracy theory about the Postal Service and the president. The way he has mismanaged our country is really uh, historic. And I think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are conveying a uh, an image of uh, competence and stability and bring back the American spirit. Uh, I think it's really wonderful. Uh, and on the, on the Postal Service, if I could say what I wanted to say about that, uh, I think he's kind of panicked uh, that the uh, announcement of Kamala Harris went off. It was a 10 out of 10. It was amazing. And he went to that stupid, uh, ridiculous, false Bertha thing right away and then had to take it back. Uh, and on the Postal Service, this is an act of desperation. And Americans understand, Anderson, that in, during a pandemic, there are lots of older voters and voters of all ages with a pre-existing condition who worry that they can't breathe safely uh, standing in line to vote. So in effect, by tampering with the Postal Service, he is in effect putting his knee uh, on the neck of American democracy and trying to make it impossible for people to vote by mail. Man, bear, pig. That's all we need to say there. Man, bear, pig. That that's that's all you need to know about Al Gore. He's putting the knee of his neck on American democracy. Go get your massage, Al Gore. Uh, it, 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 the media is willing to do this. The media is willing to peddle these conspiracies. The media is willing to give a pass to Joe Biden. Notice you had like like standard press corps members who were upset that Biden didn't take question, but but the the anchors. The, the big guns in the media, the, the people who, who it's their job to pontificate on their shows, didn't raise the issue. It was the beat reporters who were questioning why Biden wasn't taking questions. It wasn't them because they're perfectly willing to carry water for Biden on this issue. It's not going to last, though. And the longer this drags on, it is, a, a, is strategically problematic for Biden the more it drags on. Because, you know, he's going to have to have the debates. They're not going to get rid of the debates. You're not going to see Joe Biden say, well, I, I see no reason to debate Donald Trump on this stuff. They're, they're going to do it. They're going to have to do it. And that's not going to be good for the Democrats. Because the longer you guard Biden, the less you challenge him now with questions from reporters, the worse it's going to be. This is kind of a problem with, with candidates who don't have primaries. Now, Biden had a primary uh, for, for what there was of the Democratic primary. He had one. But candidates who aren't challenged regularly on the campaign trail become lazy candidates.
And Biden for months now has not been challenged, and that's not good at any age, particularly at his age, to not be challenged mentally in the way some reporters would. And he's going to have to go out there and do a debate. And and his only saving grace in the debate is he's going to hope that the moderator is privately friendly to him or publicly friendly to him. And I don't know that that's going to work for him either because he's going to be up against Donald Trump, who say what you will, but the president knows how to turn things around on people. And Biden, if he gets flustered or muddled, he's going to look weak against Donald Trump. The Democrats are playing with fire on this, and some of them privately know it. They just don't know what to do about it. It is the 82nd night of protests in Portland, Oregon. Notice, notice, notice. I said protests, not riots, but there are riots. It really is amazing how it's gone on for so long that the media has just kind of moved on to other stories. It's just, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to me um, that, 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 that's, that's where we are and, and, and that, that's what's going on. And, 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 but that's, that is what's happening. 87 nights or 82 nights of protests in Portland, Oregon. And at this point, a lot of the prominent black leader in the, the I mean, Portland is is an overwhelmingly white area, and it is a bunch of young white hipsters who are doing the protesting. And uh, the black political leaders are coming out saying, uh, why, why are you guys still protesting? Nobody seems to know what they're really protesting over anymore. It's just this is a religious sort of thing. And, you know, I, I was struck last night. Again, I watched the Braves. I hung out with some some friends, bourbon cigars and, and the Braves and – I had to watch some of the speeches this morning. I was struck by the religious overtones of the Democratic Convention. They left out Jesus, no mentions of God, and, and there was this. Listen to this. Many of the videos and pictures you're about to see were recorded before COVID, which is why the kids are not social distancing. However, the audio was recorded over the past month. You may rise or kneel if you are able, per your preference. <laughs> rise or or kneel if you are able. Your preference for the national anthem at the beginning. My goodness gracious! Um, remember a couple of years ago they booed God and for 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 being included in the Democratic platform. Now they don't even want to mention God and Jesus. Uh, it is the government that we're all a part of. It, it is a religion to them, and and this protesting is religious. And you do need to understand this that uh, that God does not go away. You can't get rid of the creator of all things. But one of the things that does happen fundamentally is your your true religion morphs to people who reject religion as God intended it. Religion doesn't go away. It just becomes in a new form. And it still has its own liturgies. It still has its own rites. It still has its own ritual. It still has its own sacraments. I mean, inarguably, abortion is a sacrament of the left. Protest is increasingly a sacrament of the left. But protest is also religious right. In the way you or I may go to church back in the day when we could, they go to protest. And the longer they protest, the more convicted they are of the righteousness of their cause. And so, you know, know, with Catholics, you can go to mass every day. You can go to mass every day. You can have the the sacrament of of, um, the Eucharist. You can go to confession. 
it is very Catholic what we're seeing with the protesters in 82 days of showing up to protest every day. It is their version of going to mass, their version of participating in the sacraments of the left. And at this point, the media has completely tuned it out. But the protests have actually continued to be violent. They're continuing to beat up people who just passed by. They're continuing to beat up spectators. They're continuing to harass the police. They're continuing to to tear down stores. And what's so interesting is the media has, has gone overboard trying to give them a pass on all this stuff. But the reality is this. The media, in going so far uh, as they are, is allowing the Republicans to fill the void on this. You've actually got conservative organizations who have sent journalists in and interviewed the business owners who aren't happy. They've interviewed the people who live in the area. And by the way, these people are not Republicans, but they sure are mad at the protesters. And when the media doesn't cover that side of the story, people go in search of it. You know, that, that's kind of one of the rules of thumb here. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing such a rise of, of conspiracy in the Internet age. The, the longer that uh, the media refuses to cover a story, other people go out to try to get the story. And they may have uh, they may do it with false pretenses. They may do it with bad motives and they go out and shape the story just as the media shape stories. These other people go out and shape stories and they want to tell counter narratives to the media narrative. They want to show you the things the media doesn't show you. And they almost do what the media does. They exclude the stuff the media has shown you to paint a different picture. And you've got to really be able to synthesize these things together to figure out what's going on. Uh, And people don't do that anymore. And so it creates a picture. And then suddenly you have an explosive story. Like, for example, they firebombed a police station in Portland last week. And we were told these were all peaceful protests and that nobody was doing this. So a lot of people scratched their heads. How is this possible? How could it be? Well, it could be because the media didn't want to show you the full picture. Becomes deeply problematic. Now, we got to move on. Uh, when we come back, there's an explosive story out of Atlanta, actually out of Marietta, that we need to, to talk about. A hotel and its employees are being dragged into federal court for human trafficking. And what happened there is deeply disturbing. And if it's a pattern at some motels around the state of Georgia that you probably need to be aware of, I'll explain when we come back. Computer systems and cars are the new normal from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors to your your car play, your Android play, whatever. You, you got all this stuff, but you can't fix any of those new features yourself. So when something breaks, it can cost a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. You need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and the like. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility is an absolute must. Monthly payments can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. There's no long-term contract or commitments. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work. CarShield takes care of the rest. They offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance. They offer rental car when yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over a million customers. So drive with confidence knowing you've got coverage from America's number one auto protection company for as low as $99 a month. You can protect yourself from surprises. You can save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000. 800-CAR-6000. Mention code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, or visit carshield.com. And use code ERIC. You save 10%. That's carshield.com, code ERIC. A deductible may apply. 
Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I actually want to go to a phone call out of the gate uh, on an issue I wanted to talk about anyway. Uh, Sherry in Johns Creek is calling, and thank you very much for being patient with me, Sherry. Oh, no problem. Love your show, Eric. Thank you. Just love it. Um, And I just wanted to say really quickly that I'm a subscriber and I sent your Israel UAE deal article to my son who's in college and wanting him to read it. And he did. And he thought it was excellent. So I was encouraged that I'm getting it out, the word out. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, Okay. My question is about the mail-in ballots. Um, I have two college kids. And if I request the ballots for them and get them, and then they decide that they want to actually vote in person, from what I understand, we can not use the ballot or take it to a polling place. And I just want to make sure I had all the procedures down for whatever we decide to do. Oh, that is a good question. Okay, so here's what happens. Um, You request an absentee ballot and it arrives. Uh, You can do uh, several things. One, you can cast the absentee ballot. Two, you can take the absentee ballot to a polling place and deliver it on election day, or you can just show up on election day. Now, if you show up on election day and you don't have your absentee ballot with you and you haven't cast it, what happens is you have to vote provisionally because they already have you listed as having an absentee ballot. And so they have to go back through their records and make sure they don't have an absentee ballot from you in order to count the vote that you cast on election day. If they've already put your absentee ballot into the system, uh, they won't accept your provisional ballot uh, because your your vote's already been processed into the system. Uh, but you can do that. Uh, you, you don't have to, when you get the absentee ballot, you don't actually have to vote for it. Uh, the, that's, that is one of the reasons we have the problems in Georgia in the primary is because a lot of people had requested absentee ballots. Uh, they might not have gotten them in the mail or there was an issue so that they, they showed up on election day to vote and they all had to vote by provisional, which is essentially an absentee ballot form that they give you at the polling location. Does that make sense? It does. Great. That's a great clarification because um, I probably need to just make sure I know what they want to do. I know the lines are going to be long and long, and I know they want to vote, but you know, yeah, I, listen, about in person too. I would tell everyone if you can record, if you can request an absentee ballot, uh, do it now and and vote okay. by absentee. Um, you won't have to go on at the poll. We don't know what the virus is going to do. Uh, we don't know how bad it's going to be in November, and we don't know what the crowds are going to be and, and the technical hurdles. So if you can, I would vote by absentee. We're probably going to vote by absentee this year. I always like to vote in person. I just feel like there's something communal about it. Uh, but just given all the technical hurdles and everything else this year, I think we're going to be safe and vote absentee. Oh, great. Thank you. Great advice. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Sherry, thanks very much for the phone call. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. That, that is something you've got to pay attention to this year. Um, it, it, I normally like to vote in person. I don't like to vote by absentee. Uh, there are times where I've had to because, uh, for example, if I was at CNN or Fox and I had to be on TV or I had to be out of town for Election Day, I, w- I would vote by absentee. But normally I like to show up on Election Day. A- as a political junkie, as a political consultant, I love to show up on Election Day because you got kind of get a sense 
of what's going on? Uh, are the lines big in your area? Is, is there turnout? Like, for example, um, you could tell. So we, we had a runoff here uh, in Bibb County for mayor. When was it? Last last Tuesday, I guess. And you could tell there there were two candidates, Clifford Whitby and Lester Miller, and you could tell that that um, Miller's campaign was working because the turnout at polling precincts in the South Bibb County and the North Bibb County area, which is predominantly white areas of, of town, uh, that they were turning out at high rates for a runoff. And so clearly the, the ground game appeared to be working for him. Uh, you can tell that by going to polling locations, house turnout. So, for example, um, it, when you go to a location and you know that this location typically sees about 500 people an hour and you show up and there's nobody there, you know that voters aren't turning out. And that's a sign that, that candidates look for. You know, it, it, as an aside, I'm going to deviate. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'll get into the human trafficking story. Let me explain this to you, though, particularly those of you who ever wanted to know how this is done. Here's what a good campaign will do. Uh, a, a good campaign will go to every board of elections in in the state wherein their campaign lies. Let's say, uh, just for, for hypothetical purposes, hang on a second. I, 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 let me do um, uh, hypothetical map. I'm, I'm pulling it up. Let, let's say you've got a, a territory where you're running for office and the area in which you are running for office is up in, let's just say Northeast Georgia. So you've got a, you've got a, a campaign and your campaign involves Rabin County, Towns County, White County, Habersham County, and Stevens County. That is the, the Northeast corner of the state. Rabin's and Towns, Towns is where Hiawassee is, Rabin's where Clayton is, Habersham is where Clarksville is, Stevens, Tacoa, White is Cleveland. So Towns, White, Rabin, Habersham, and, and Stevens. Those are your counties. Here's what you do. You go to your board of elections and you ask them for a list of the precincts and the vote and the number of registered voters in those precincts. So let's say, just hypothetically, I'm making this up now. Let's say there are 10 precincts in each of these counties. So you've got five counties in this territory. You've got 10 precincts in each county. 10 times five, you've got 50 precincts to worry about total. Now, typically, there are about 50 precincts per county. I'm keeping the math simple because I'm dumb. So you've got... 50 precincts spread over five counties, 10 precincts per county. And you know, typically there are a thousand people in each precinct. Okay. You've got a thousand registered voters in each precinct. You're running, let's say hypothetically in an area like that, you're running for, I don't know, let's say state Senate. You're, you're running for the state Senate. And you go through with each of these counties and each of these precincts and each of these precincts has a thousand voters. And you see that in Precinct 1 in Habersham County, typically 900 of those 1,000 people will show up to vote. Well, if you want to win that county, how many voters do you need to have in that precinct? You need to have 451 voters on your side in that precinct in Habersham County to win that precinct. Why? Because there are 900 people who – there are 1,000 registered voters, and in your race, no more than 900 ever show up to vote. So you need 451 of them to win that precinct. Now, 
let's say from the last time you got the data to now, there's been a 10% increase in the number of voters. Well, you need to adjust by 10%. So you're 451. Now you need to add 10% to that to get it based on the population growth. This is what you do. And you do this precinct by precinct. And every good campaign from statewide to dog catcher does this. And it's very easy to do. You go to your local board of elections. You ask them for a list of all the precincts and how many registered voters are in the precinct. And then you ask them for a list of precinct by precinct, the votes for the last election that's comparable to your own. So if you're running for a state Senate seat in, say, 2020, you actually want to use not 2018, but you want to use 2016. Why? Because you're running a presidential year. Presidential years have higher turnout than off-year elections. So you get your vote. You get the number of people who turned out four years ago. And then you look, okay, four years ago, there were 1,000 people in this precinct. Uh, this year there are now three, there are 2000 people in this district. So it's doubled. So if four years ago, you had a thousand people in the precinct and 500 of them turned out. So this year we're going to presume four years later that you've got as a, the population is doubled, the turnout's going to be double. So you're going to go up to, to a thousand people. And you just do the math based on the increase and you go precinct by precinct, county by county and say, okay, there are this many people who live in this precinct. This number of people tend to turn out for this race. The the precinct population from the last time to this time has grown by this percentage. So I'm going to increase the turnout and these are the number of people I need. And so then you organize down to the precinct level and you find someone in the precinct and you say, I want you to be in the precinct and I want you to find me. I need 451 people in this precinct to vote for me. Can you be the guy who organizes your precinct and goes door to door for me and get your friends to go door to door and they say yes. And then you get an app like the the campaign sidekick app. A buddy of mine, Drew Ryan actually runs campaign sidekick. Great app and it does this. You do a door knocker map and you go door to door and you say, will you vote for my candidate please? And they say yes, no, we're undecided. If it's no, you don't worry about them. If they're undecided, you follow up again. You send the candidate to their house and say, will you vote for me? And you build a list slowly but surely, precinct by precinct. This person's going to vote for me. This person's going to vote for me. This person's going to vote for me. And then on election day, you've been running a phone bank telling all these people who are going to vote, remember, it's the election. Remember, it's the election. Do you need an absentee ballot form? Do you need an absentee ballot form? And on election day, you go turn out. And now this is the brilliance of it. Every precinct has what? a polling location and you can go to the polling location. And if you're familiar with the precinct, you might know the people who are in line. If not, you may have collected enough data to be able to text people who live in that precinct and say, Hey, just wanted you to know that the turnout is really light in this precinct. Can you step it up? That is how you run a campaign effectively to win office. You, you do it down to the precinct level. You organize at the precinct level. And there are people listening right now saying, nobody's got time for that. Yes, you know who has time for that? The winners. The winners have time for that. And that is why you have massive turnout in presidential elections. Because in presidential elections, the presidential campaigns get down to the precinct level. Now, this gets me to why Joe Biden probably is not going to win Georgia. In addition to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll, the reality is 
Uh, if you haven't heard of the AJC poll, the AJC poll is uh, shows that Joe Biden is behind Donald Trump in Georgia at a time that the Democrats tend to be ahead of Republicans in Georgia. Now, uh, there, I've got some concerns about the polling, but still, it, it's fairly consistent in Georgia that it's very close. Donald Trump slightly ahead in the best position for polling for the Democrats. The Democrats are still behind in Georgia. That suggests that Joe Biden's going to lose. But on top of that, consider this. I just laid out how you win a campaign. You organize county by county down to the precinct level. You find a precinct captain for each precinct. That precinct captain goes and knocks on doors, organizes knock-on-door parties. They go out, they knock on doors, or they phone banks, since you can't go knocking on doors right now, and they find the people who might actually vote for your candidate, and they build a list, and you know in a county, in a precinct that has 1,000 voters, where 900 of those voters typically turn out, 1,000 never turn out, 900 turn out, you need 451 of those people to vote for you. You build a list with 451 names. And in a precinct where you know they're going to be out to get you, but a Republican typically does 20 votes, well, you try to get just 25 votes and and you stack in areas where, where you know you're going to be even more competitive. Joe Biden's campaign hasn't done this in Georgia. When you're on a presidential campaign, you do this in every state. You do it in every single state. Now, there are some states that you tend to write off, like California or New York if you're a Republican, uh, Texas, or, or Arizona in the past, if you were a Democrat, you, you tend to write them off. But in competitive states, and Georgia is supposed to be a competitive state, you take the time and you do this. And the Biden campaign has only just started building out its field operation in Georgia. That's not what you do if you want to win Georgia. Again, you can listen to me do this, this entire riff on how you, how you do precinct organization, what you do, how you turn out voters, all of that. And you can say, well, that's that's a waste of someone's time. It's not a waste of time for a winner. The winners take the time to do this sort of stuff. And Joe Biden's campaign in Georgia is not operating like it's a winner because it's not doing campaign fundamentals. This is campaign 101. I went to campaign management school. You learn this the second day. On the first day, you're busy learning people's names and what you're going to do for the rest of the week. The first real day of class, this is what you learn. Basic campaign organizational skills involve organizing down to the precinct level to win a campaign. I've done this for years as a campaign consultant and won most of my races by doing it because you take the time to do it. And the Biden campaign in Georgia has not bothered to do it. That's a telling sign that they're not really in it to win it in Georgia. It's all a bunch of hype. It is Eric Erickson here. This hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan out of Noonan, Georgia. They are good friends of mine, good people, and if you've got a business, they want to help your business. Now, what you need to know about First Liberty is they are not for you if you're an individual. But if you got a business uh, and your business needs access to credit, capital, loans, whatever, they want to help you. Uh, if you need help navigating the PPP process, there's someone you can rely on for advice. What you do is you go to firstlibertyga.com, firstlibertyga.com. That's got their contact info, uh, how to how to go through them for what you need, what they can do for you. Y'all, they do big loans. I mean, they do $10 million loans. Uh, so if your business needs that, they can help you. They are really good people. And you go through them. It helps my show, too, um, because they're a sponsor of the program. But also, they really are good at helping your business. They've been doing this since 1993. 
and they specialize in small and mid-sized businesses that want to become big businesses. Uh, so go to firstlibertyga.com. Uh, it's a great way to help this program if you're a business and, and need access to capital, credit, loans, and the like. Uh, but it's also a great way to just help your business. Uh, so firstlibertyga.com is their website, and thank you to them. There is a fascinating story in The New Yorker. Uh, Charlie Bethia, he's interviewed me several times. He's a reporter here in Georgia, freelances for The New Yorker, and it's about the Lovett School in Atlanta. The Lovett School is a uh, ritzy private school on the banks of the Chattahoochee just off of uh, West Paces Ferry. And let me just read you the open here. The Lovett School, a private K-12 institution in Atlanta with an annual tuition approaching $30,000, stopped holding in-person classes in March. From that point until the end of the school year, all meetings happen online. On May 17th, 160 graduating seniors and their families observed the occasion with an automotive parade around the tree-lined 100-acre campus, which is situated along a picturesque bend in the Chattahoochee River a few miles from the governor's mansion in the city's Tony Buckhead district. Range Rovers, Mercedes Benzes, a 67 Stingray, among other vehicles, circled for about 45 minutes. Graduates yelled out of car windows and from the bed of pickup trucks. Queens, we are the champions, blared from speakers. Faculty and administrators lined the route, handing out cookies. About a month later, I spoke to a father who had driven around his son. I haven't left my driveway in 21 days, he said. He and his son both tested positive for the virus. I had a fever for nine days, the father told me. I've been unable to play golf. He just knew that they had gotten it. It wasn't from the parade. We got it from one of those parties, he told me. We know the kids who got it, he added. After the parade, multiple Lovett families held private parties to celebrate. One party at a home was attended by about 20 people. Another in a backyard was attended by about 50. There were also smaller gatherings. This seemed fine at the time, the dad said. We don't live in New York. Our state was open. Georgia, under the direction of Governor Brian Kemp, was the first state to allow businesses to reopen on April 24th. This alarmed many observers. A headline in The Atlantic described Kemp's decision as an experiment in human sacrifice, but for the first two few weeks, no clear spike in cases was detected. We were no longer in quarantine. They were telling people to go to restaurants, get your hair cut, get a tattoo, do things. It's Georgia, for God's sake. Well, his family was lucky they detected the virus when it did. The only reason we knew he had it was because my son had what he thought was a head cold. We were headed to North Carolina, so we decided to drive by Georgia Tech and get him tested. They did that two days after the onset of symptoms on May 21st, the Thursday before Memorial Day, and the positive COVID-19 test result came back the same day. And the family notified Lovett immediately. We saved lives, probably, the father said, the same day. Well, the virus started spreading. Now, here, here's the punchline of why, why I do this, and this is, this is actually kind of funny, um, is they tried to trace... They tried to trace the virus through the school. They tried to figure out who all had it. And the people at the Lovett School went nuts with it. They didn't believe the contact tracers were actually trying to trace it. They thought it was a scam. Um, and on and on it goes. It was just the impossibility of contact tracing. Families didn't want to cooperate with the contact tracers. 
And so the virus continued to spread. And, and some people went to, to Pauly's Island and had a big party at Pauly's Island. They kept the kids in, in the house. They didn't go out. Well, they got the virus there and they brought it back and they spread it further. It, it spread through multiple private schools and friend groups. And, and the media had a field day with it. And, and the problem is it, it set out a media hunt for everybody. Uh, members of the media were direct messaging kids on TikTok, trying to get them to do interviews with the press about this to try to blow up the story. And it was all a story designed to make the governor look bad, by the way. It is notable in all of this that it's not the governor's policies that caused the virus to spread. It's people's irresponsible behavior. The governor said, well, you could reopen, but you still needed to be socially distant and the like. People didn't listen. They didn't listen. And the result is that they um, spread the virus has nothing to do with the governor. It has to do with people's own irresponsible behavior spreading the virus. But the media narrative is all blame Brian Kemp all the time. This story doesn't, uh, but it does point out the ridiculousness of the contact tracing and the people who think it's an invasion of privacy. One of the interesting things that happens in this country with the media, because the media does lean left, it's in a bubble, it, it has uh, sympathies uh, to those on the left, is it pays attention. You get a lot of national media stories about left-wing groups that organize. You hear all the time about the, the Justice Democrats or the various unions, uh, what Planned Parenthood is doing, the, the Rock the Vote kids who are all a bunch of leftists. Um, you rarely hear about Republicans doing the same thing. And, and often one of the things that people think is, well, nobody's doing anything on the right. And that's not true. There are a number of groups out there on the right who are engaged in the election and helping. Uh, one of those is Heritage Action for America. And they're actually rolling out Fight for America. It's a new grassroots initiative. They're going to work on the swing states. And interestingly enough, they're going to make police a big issue and standing for the police. They're going to launch this uh, with the vice president of the United States. And joining me is Jessica Anderson, the executive director of Heritage Action. How are you? Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us about going to Iowa with the vice president of this. Sounds like a big deal. Yes, we were in Iowa on Thursday of last week launching this campaign called Fight for America, which basically is going to take the fight back to the liberal left, who, as we know, is right now seeking to defund our police. They're attacking our brave law enforcement officers. And so we want to stand up against that and show that this administration, conservatives across the country, and actually the average swing voter all agree that we need to support the police. And we need to return safety and security to our streets and neighborhoods. It's a pretty simple message. And it's crazy that in 2020, we have to actually make this point. Yeah, it is. And, and my apologies. I had I had written my note that it's happening this week. So it was last week. And now I see the press release uh, that it did do this. You know, you and I have both been around in politics for some time. And, and it is crazy that in 2020, we're actually having to defend the police as an institution. And we're also watching progressives for the first time in memory want to actually defund a union, that being the police union. You know, it, it really is wild, Eric. And I, and I think what's happening is that as the mob rule and the anarchy that's just being spurred from the left right now, as that just is completely unchecked, the police have really gotten caught in the crosshairs and they have become basically a, a straw bag that the left is just pounding upon. And so we want to flip that on its head and say, look, a lawful society isn't possible without law enforcement. And they've chosen a noble profession. This is the thin blue line that protects you and me, it protects our families. 
It provides safety and security. They should be praised, not admonished. And that's the exact message that the vice president gave to the 50 law enforcement officers that we had with us in Des Moines last week. And that's the heart behind our police pledge that I'm excited to announce uh, with you today that we're launching, which will put elected officials at all levels of government, state, local, and federal on the record on whether or not they will support the police and stand against any effort to defund law enforcement. (laughs) Now, that's going to be fun to to watch this nuancing, particularly given the left's uh, willingness to just devour people these days for for not supporting defunding the police. So, so are you launching this? Is it nationwide or particularly in swing states? So the police pledge itself is nationwide, and you're you're right. I mean, the left tiptoes on this, right? Kamala Harris says we're going to reimagine public safety. Biden says he wants to redirect funds away from the police. AOC, she just comes out and says it: defund right. the police. Period. I mean, she doesn't she doesn't tiptoe around anything. And so the police pledge is going to put these members, put these elected officials at all levels on the record. Do they or do they not support safety and security? Will they or will they not support bills, resolutions or movements to defund the police? And we're going to work you know, locally all the way up to the federal level with the hopes that we get mayors, governors, senators and members of Congress all on the record uh, coming out against the defund the police movement. I mean, it's it really is a, a, a very interesting time that we even have to say this, but it's required. And it's what the conservative right should be doing right now to stand up uh, against the lawlessness. Well, I, I want to pivot just a little bit because I, I know you guys, uh, I mean, going all the way back to the founding of Heritage Action, have done a lot of, of grassroots advocacy, training, and door-to-door. And this year, I mean, with the virus, it's hard to go door-to-door. But if I recall reading in the last week or so, uh, you guys are doing some door-to-door canvassing, but also a lot of phone banking. Is that right? That's that's right. So what we did is in, on April 1st, we launched what we call Project 2020. And basically, this is our, our effort to take the grassroots and engage directly with swing voters. And so we're doing this in Iowa, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And so far since April 1st, we've talked to just over two and a half million swing voters on policy issues. So things like economic recovery, supporting law enforcement, legal immigration, immigration reform, securing the border, cutting taxes, the policy issues that we know drive these swing voters. And as we talk to them, we then encourage them to vote conservative this November. We we register them if someone's not registered in the household. And then now that COVID has allowed us to go door to door and open up in some states, we've been able to actually start knocking on households the last two weeks. But our goal is is to reach 4 million swing voters spread out amongst these battleground states. And in particular, you know, not only are we engaging with them on the issues, but we're trying to convert them, right? We want them to come into the movement long term because we know that our policy solutions are better than the left's alternative. And so it's not just about November. It's about the long term plan to grow the conservative movement and make a home for these swing voters on the policy issues within the conservative grassroots. Well, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that, honestly, because it, it seems like so many people are they're just focusing on this election and, and the president. And it seems like every couple of years we've got to rebuild a grassroots mm-hmm. base because we make it so much about the person instead of the ideas. It's just nice to know that there's a group out there making it about the ideas instead of the person. That's right. And honestly, Eric, it's one of the things I find the most frustrating is the day after the election, 
you know, I love the party, but the party picks up and leaves. And, and we just can't operate like that. We need to have long-term relationships at the most local grassroots level, and we need to be present winning converts year after year after year, not just turning on the lights on, on you know, even number of years. And that's what Heritage Action is focused on, and we're going to do this long after the election, and this will just be part of our toolbox. As you come to expect Heritage Action for our legislative scorecard, expect this grassroots level work at the ground game that allows us to work with these swing voters, bring them in, and then turn them into, you know, accountability warriors as we work with members of Congress once they're in office. That's fantastic. Now, let, let me let me ask you, lay of the land wise, you, you look at a lot of the polling out there and nationally the polling looks terrible. But you look into these swing states. One of the things that stands out to me is that while some swing state voters, particularly suburban women, don't particularly care for the president, the Republican brand actually doesn't do bad. And the conservative label actually performs outperforms the progressive label still in a lot of these places. And I'm wondering how you translate that into knocking on doors and encouraging people to get out and vote on policy. Well, what we're finding is that if you actually talk to the swing voter about the policy and you put aside the personalities of President Trump or candidate Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris, if you just focus on the policy, we actually can win them over. And so Our door knockers, they talk about the economic recovery needed for COVID-19. Who is, who do you trust the most to provide that economic recovery? And what does that actually look like amidst, you know, a a lot of tumult going on? When you look at an issue like supporting the police, we have a new poll out today that specifically is asking these swing voters in these battleground states, what do you think about uh, the movement to significantly cut funding for police Departments across the country, which, as we call it, is just the defund the police movement. 79% are opposed to that compared to only 16% of these swing voters. And so, you know, swing voters matter because they're usually more in tune with the policy issues themselves. And we can persuade them on these things if we stick to the issues. And, you know, I think the police um, inflection point is important. The responses to COVID-19 are obviously important. And And, you know, the larger conversation around the economy, that is a strength for President Trump. In battleground states, it's proving to be a, you know, plus two net job approval, and it ties back to his overall numbers. But the message has to be about things that are specific to the swing voter, economic recovery, safety and security, quelling the violence, having wage satisfaction. You make it about those policy issues, then we've got the chance to win them over and keep them as part of the conservative movement long-term. Now, people want to get involved. If they want to find out more, what should they do? Well, first thing I would say is they themselves should check out the Police Pledge. It's located at policepledge.com. We're asking the grassroots to sign it, as well as asking all elected officials um, at really all levels of government. And so I would love everyone's help. Ask your member of Congress, ask your mayor, ask your governor, ask your, the candidates that are running for House seats. If they'll sign it, policepledge.com. And then, of course, HeritageAction.com has all of our information about the ground game. And if you're interested in going door to door with us, we'd love the help. It's the last 80 days. We can't leave anything you know, left on the field. This is truly the, the final march. And it's important that we get out the boat and we do all that we can heading into November and beyond. 
I just signed it, policepledge.com. Uh, hey, now, hey. I, I, I'm pushing it out on, on Twitter so people can go to my Twitter feed, find the link. They can do it as well or go to policepledge.com. And listen, uh, thank you so much for stopping by and, and talking about this. Uh, good luck out there. I'm glad to see you guys engage with the swing states on this issue. You got it. Thanks, Eric, for having me. Talk soon. Absolutely. Jessica Anderson, she is the executive director of Heritage Action for America. Again, if you go to uh, the website, policepledge.com, you can sign this. You can also learn more about Heritage Action for America. You can also get a back the blue yard sign for your yard if that's something you're interested in. And frankly, they're going to be targeting Georgia because Georgia is a swing state this year. All right. Uh, it, I, I saw Charlie actually mentioning this on Twitter, and I pulled it. This is so stupid. This is from, from Outkick. Uh uh, Ryan Glass Spiegel uh, for Clay Travis's website. Uh, how bizarre! Uh, so Fernando Tatis Jr. is it gets scolded for hitting a grand slam. Dude hits a grand slam, but the problem is that the Padres were already leading the Rangers ten to three in the top of the eighth, and so the manager Jace Tingler says that. Uh, it, Tatis swung through a take sign on 3-0 when San Diego had a comfortable lead. And and so Tatis is having to apologize for hitting a grand slam. What is this? This is, there's no rule here. And and what they're saying is they're increasingly a bunch of unwritten rules that you've got to follow in baseball. A bunch of politically, these people are ruining baseball. Take the grand, don't take the participation trophy. Take the grand slam. It's just, just bizarre. I, I want to spend a little bit of time on a on a, a story. Uh, if you if you haven't heard the news, I mentioned earlier the president has um, he has pardoned uh, Susan B. Anthony a hundred years to the date of the uh, enactment of the Nineteenth Amendment. Susan B. Anthony had been arrested for trying to vote. And so he's issued a pardon. I'm sure members of the media will criticize it. They'll find some reason to criticize it. People are already criticizing it that he didn't pardon Edward Snowden or somebody. I'm glad he didn't. That guy's a traitor. Um, But Susan B. Anthony, yeah, okay. Um, Pardoning her, the media will either criticize it or they will ignore it lest it help him. I want to talk about a story that's not going to get a lot of national attention. I want to read to you part of a story from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because this is a pattern uh, that is being exposed in federal court, uh, and it's not just happening in Atlanta. It's happening in Houston or uh, Miami. It's happening in the outskirts of Chicago. It's happening all over the country. But here, employees of a Cobb County hotel, though, if you're not listening in the Georgia area, Cobb County is the county uh, just to the northwest of Atlanta city limits. Uh, it is a uh, one of the largest counties in the state, most populous counties in the state, I should say. Employees of a Cobb County hotel where police have responded to numerous calls over the years. New sex trafficking was taking place. Newly federal, doc, uh, a newly filed federal lawsuit alleges. Now, this is this is the part that has me stumbling over my words because I'm trying not to use profanity because it outrages me so much. Instead of helping victims, the suits allege hotel employees helped the traffickers hide from police and profited from the crime ring. 
The two lawsuits filed last week are the latest targeting Metro Atlanta hotels for their alleged roles in trafficking. The same hotel is named in both suits, the Days Inn by Wyndham on Northwest Parkway in Marietta. Police have been called to investigate trafficking and numerous other crimes over the years. Without a venue or crime scene, a sex trafficking venture ceases to exist, one of the lawsuits says. Defendants, for a fee, provided the crime scene, a private and anonymous venue for the 15-year-old victim to be sold for sex at their hotel. Part of the filing was a photo of a vending machine in the hotel's lobby stocked with condoms, a sticker with a lewd message affixed to the glass. The companies that own the and operate the Days Inn, including Lincoln Hotels, Days Inn Worldwide, and Wyndham Hotels and Resorts, were contacted by the Atlanta Journal for uh, comment on the lawsuits filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia. Wyndham spokesman declined to comment. In January, Wyndham announced it was reinforcing efforts to fight sex trafficking saying that they condemn human trafficking in any form. The lawsuits claim employees of the Marietta Days Inn did nothing to help known victims and sometimes acted as lookouts when officers were called to the hotel in 2018. One of the victims was able to call the police, her lawsuit states. However, to further the sex trafficking enterprise and its benefits, employees of the Days Inn called the room that the plaintiff was trafficked in and informed the traffickers not to leave the room because police were in the parking lot. Hotel employees also overlooked signs that sex trafficking was taking place and ignored online reviews by other guests alleging criminal activity. While she was trafficked by the Days Inn, plaintiff exhibited numerous well-known and visible signs of a minor sex trafficking victim in the commons areas, of which defendants knew or should have known, including her age and inappropriate appearance, physical deterioration, poor hygiene, fatigue, sleep deprivation, injuries, a failure to make eye contact with others, no control of or possession of money, loitering, soliciting male patrons, and monitoring and control by her traffickers, including two older men. One of the lawsuits said the plaintiffs are seeking trials by jury and unspecified punitive damages. According to attorney Pat McDonough, one of several involved with the lawsuits, McDonough and Jonathan Tong work for Anderson Tate and Carr Law Firm, and attorneys Pete Law, Mike Moran, and Dennis uh, Denise Hoying are employed by Law and Moran. In August... They filed four lawsuits to believe to be the first in Georgia to target hotels rather than the individuals targeting victims. The hotels were a red roof inn near the teepee. That would be the Brave Stadium. I refuse to call it by its real name because it's a stupid name for a stupid bank. La Quinta Inn near North Point Mall. Hometown Studios previously operating as a suburban extended stay on Peachtree Industrial Court in Chambly and extended stay America on Hammond Drive near Sandy Springs. In October, a separate lawsuit filed by different attorneys identified two Clayton County hotels and their owners for their roles in sex trafficking. Now, to put this in, in perspective for these, these earlier lawsuits, one of the allegations is that one of the girls was able to escape, go to the front desk of the hotel, explain what was happening... And the hotel employees responded by calling the traffickers to come get the girl. This is going on in major American cities. There are documented records of police being called to show up and fight this. In November, a Florida woman was found in the hotel parking lot with two crack pipes, according to her arrest. In March, a standoff lasted several hours after a man attacked and kidnapped a woman inside one of the rooms. 
These are not hotels where you would stay with your family. But there are hotels where bad things happen. There's a hotel here in Macon, a motel. Um, and, and oftentimes one of the signs of these places is you, you can enter through the exterior. You don't have to go into the hotel to get into your room. A lot of more modern hotels, you have to go inside. These have the, the, the balconies, uh, sidewalks where you can go into the room. You never have to go to the front desk. You can go up the staircase. Uh, it gives plausible deniability. That's one of the signs. And uh, a lot of these places are extended stay. They're for essentially tenement homes for migrant workers and others. And this sort of stuff happens there. And it happens in your city and mine, and it flies under the radar. And oftentimes the hotel employees are collaborating. And you need to be aware of this. And by the way, it used to be that what would happen is they would kidnap uh, or, or traffic girls from abroad who would come into this country. And as the border controls have been clamped down, as people become hyperware, and by the way, the Obama administration does deserve credit for training Border Patrol agents who have gotten tougher in fighting human trafficking. But what has happened as a result of the restrictions and the ability to get uh, women from abroad into this country is they're trafficking American girls and boys, by the way. It, it happens to boys, too. And they're either kidnapped, they're lured away on social media, they are drugged, they are groomed. Uh, this happens in horrific ways. And we should all be mindful of it. I'm aware of two girls in Denver, Colorado, who won an online dating or modeling competition to New York City and got, got a ticket to New York City. And it was actually the Delta agent at the gate in Denver who realized it was a one-way ticket and something must be up. And sure enough, it was. The girls were to be kidnapped and trafficked. This happens more and more people. You need to be aware of it. It's something you need to talk about with your family as well. This is a problem in this country, and it's something we all need to fight. And kudos to these lawyers for taking a stand. I... I I hesitate to spend any more time on this, but but there's a little more detail that I think should be added. We do have other news to get to, including I want to do a breakdown of this polling in Georgia where it looks like Joe Biden's opportunity to win Georgia is slipping away. I am effusive with my praise about uh, Quip toothbrushes, and the reason I am is, you know, I, I bought one of those $100 toothbrushes my dentist said I needed to get one of those sonic toothbrushes that really cleaned your teeth, and it was garbage. It was crap. I can say that. This is an ad for my podcast. I can say it was crap. It was $100 in crap. I did not like it. The The brush head was so big, you could tell that no one who actually ever brushed their teeth had designed it. Couldn't even fit to the back of my mouth. It was garbage. And I gave up on those electric toothbrushes, even though my dentist told me they were supposedly good, because they were terribly designed. And then Quip came out, and it has been a life-changing way to brush your teeth because it's got all the sonic vibrations that all these others have, but it was clearly designed by dentists and designers together. And it's got a subscription, so when your brush head after about three months, it wears out. You get a new brush head for just five bucks. It's a subscription. It's great. I love it. My whole family now uses Quip. Comes in multiple colors. You get the brush head subscription. It's great. If you go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now, you'll get your first brush head refill for free. It's your first refill for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's spelled get and then quip.com slash Erickson. Quip, the good habits company. I knew it. I knew it. I told you, I knew it. Yep, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
the New York Times is out uh, with their take on the president pardoning Susan B. Anthony. Ms. Anthony was tried for illegally voting and protested the fine that she was charged. She's also an increasingly divisive figure adopted by anti-abortion forces and criticized for relegating black suffragists to the sidelines. <laughs> hey, it is it is predictable that they got to they got to attack somehow. Uh, they hate the Susan B. Anthony um, uh, Foundation. It, it is a, a pro-life group that I, I really, really like. Uh, Susan B. Anthony Fund, is, they, they find pro-life women around the country to run for office. And man, um, they just are generally, the media despises them for, for a successful track record in getting pro-life women elected. Um, and so now they got to go after Susan B. Anthony because the president had the audacity to nominate the or pardon the woman a hundred years to the day of the passage of the 19th amendment. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, it is, well, there, there you go. I don't want to say it is what it is, but it is, it is. I, I, I want to spend just another moment on this story. Um, because I, I, I think it is, is, is big. It's substantive. You, you need to know about it. Uh, and I don't care whether, where you are or anywhere in the country, you need to, you need to hear this in Atlanta, a days in in Marietta, which is uh, near the, the brave stadium is being sued in federal court for collaborating in human trafficking. The hotel employees are accused of not only turning a blind eye, to human trafficking, but aiding and abetting the traffickers, including tipping them off that the police were in the parking lot and they needed to stay in the rooms. Many of the places where human trafficking goes on are cheaper hotels, extended stay places. And one of the signs is they have the exterior balcony access points. That I'm told is the technical term for it. It is, you, you know, you, you go into your standard Holiday Inn Express, Hampton Inn, um, Hyatt Place, whatever. You have to enter into the hotel, go past the front desk and take an elevator to your room. In older hotels, motels, uh, old Holiday Inns, old Days Inns, old Comfort Inns and the like, and it was balconies, then you could go up an exterior stairwell and into the room from the balcony. You didn't have to go into the hotel. You didn't have to pass by the front desk. And it is increasingly those places with the exterior um, sidewalks and all uh, where you never have to go inside. Those are the ones that are used by the human traffickers. And the reason is very simple. Uh, they want to give plausible deniability to the front desk. Uh, they want to be able to come and go unseen. And they use them. What is important here for you to understand is that it used to be in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was very typically young women and young men who were smuggled into the country from abroad, Eastern Europe and Asia. Many of the the people who still stockpile the, um, the Asian-themed massage parlors are victims of human trafficking smuggled into this country from abroad. 
And they were told that their families would be murdered if they tried to escape. They were told that the American police would be abusive to them if they tried to speak out. They were never allowed to learn the language. Many of them, as they matured and began to accept their fate and, and over time got Stockholm Syndrome and would collaborate, were then promoted from, from the massage parlor to the nail salon and then eventually from the nail salon to managing restaurants. Uh, there was a report issued by the Justice Department. It was drafted actually by the Janet Reno Justice Department under Bill Clinton. It was released right after the Bush administration came in with John Ashcroft uh, with credit back to the Reno um, Justice Department for documenting what was going on. And it painted a fascinating portrait of, of this uh, international human trafficking in the United States where very particularly uh, southeastern American cities were targeted. The money was then uh, funneled to the Northwest, to the Pacific Northwest, to hubs of Asian mafia activity, and then transmitted across the sea to Japan and South Korea. As the Bush administration and the Obama administration began to take human trafficking very seriously, the dynamics have changed over time. Increasingly, you do not have foreign um kidnap victims serving as human trafficking victims in this country. You have American kids. And the one is disturbing and bad enough, and, and this is what's happening here in this country, is either children are groomed oftentimes by families. I actually interviewed a young lady who was being trafficked by her father. He would take her to these motels himself and sell her for sex. He would rent her out to other human traffickers who would take her around the country for sex. And there is an increasing trend for it to happen to young boys as well. And people don't like to talk about that as because as, as much as the one is awkward given stigmas, the, the, the other is... is um, if in, in some people's minds treated as even more disturbing, more depraved, they're, they're equally depraved, equally disturbing. Uh, and we should be willing to acknowledge this doesn't just happen to young girls. Uh, it is more often, uh, with young girls, but also with young boys and they are trafficked by their parents in some cases or relatives, or they are groomed online and online chats and they run away from home to meet the person that they've met online. And the person they've met online strikes up a friendship with them and ultimately introduces them to drugs and gets them addicted to drugs and in the process grooms them into trafficking. Many of the victims of trafficking are also dependent on drugs. I know someone who had a had a very had a situation in in his family where this happened to actually a young boy in in the family he was kin to who met someone online who purportedly was someone his age who lived nearby and decided he wanted to meet up with them and was was of the age where his parents didn't think anything about it if he was out of the house by himself in the neighborhood and uh, met with the person in a hotel near his home. And it was not someone his age. It was actually an adult. And thankfully for the kid, 
the hotel uh, was actually responsive to his freaking out. And he was saved. But this happens. And if your kids have apps, have programs, have video games that have chat apps inside them where you can connect with other people, uh, it, it increases the odds of this happening. And, and you have to make your kids aware. We have had to have the talk with our kids that evil resides on the Internet. And you can go down rabbit holes and, and lose your mind to pornography and other stuff. You can become addicted to it online, uh, but also people can lure you away and convince you they're friends and, and really they're, they're monsters hiding in the dark of the Internet. And more and more American kids are having this happen to them. And one of the common traits is that they have families who are not engaged in this transcends demographics. You have families who are not engaged in your childhood. You go looking for friends on the internet. You think you found a friend and you've actually found a predator who wants to lure you away for themselves or for others. And this is what has happened in, in purportedly at some of these hotels is kids, either family members or people they've met online who take them away. They and, and oftentimes what happens is you need to understand more often than not in this country now, it's not people who are being kidnapped. That happens. It fundamentally happens. Kids in this country are kidnapped and lured away. There was a story I interviewed a woman who was telling me about a, a Delta Airlines flight from Denver via Atlanta to New York City. Or no, 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 it was Denver to New York, I believe, directly, but it was Denver and it was Delta. And Delta has trained all of its employees on human trafficking signs. And it was two girls who won a modeling competition in New York City. And they had uh, tickets to New York City and rooms at the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York, a, a hotel I have stayed at across from Penn Station. And uh, they were ready to go. They showed up at the airport. They had friends drop them off. They hadn't told their parents they were going to go for the weekend and come back. They were going to sneak away from home. And it was the gate agent at the Delta uh, who realized that these girls were not with their parents. They were clearly underage. And did they know their tickets were one way? And, and clearly there was a mistake that, that it was a modeling competition. Uh, it was a round trip ticket. And the, and the woman's like, nope, it, it's, it's a one way ticket. Girls had no idea. The woman kept them there and, and notified higher ups at Delta who notified the authorities who told them what was going on. And the girls missed their flight. And the police in New York City were notified. They went to the Hotel Pennsylvania, and the people had fled the scene before they could get there because the girls had not made the flight. Clearly, there was something going on. There had been a tip-off of some kind, uh, and, and they had fled the scene. And these girls were nearly the victims of human trafficking, kidnapped. This is a true story, and this only happened a couple of years ago. I interviewed uh, the people who, who were deeply familiar with the details of it. More often than not, though, what happens is your kids become friends with someone online and they decide to meet up in person. And sometimes it's another kid. I know someone that this happened. I interviewed someone, and, and let me tell you about this. Um, I interviewed someone that this happened to, and it was a, a, a boy who met a girl online who was, was curious, and they finally met up in person. It's a 16-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl, and they did what a 16-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl uh, un, unattached uh, did, and they did this several times, and the girl introduced the boy to drugs, and then the girl introduced the boy to other people and didn't let him leave and had to do 
bad things with people of both sexes and then was so ashamed and did not want to go home and felt trapped and thankfully was rescued by a a human trafficking group. I've interviewed these people. This sort of stuff happens in this country and it's something we don't pay attention to and it happens all over the country. It happens in big cities and it happens in small cities. Increasingly, it happens in towns where kids are lured away with the, the dream of a big city life. And you have got to be engaged with your kids because the thing that so many of these have in common, with the exception of those that are parental-based, and you would be shocked at the number of kids whose parents do this. Uh, you know, I, I am a believer in hell because it gives me reassurance that someone may escape justice in this life, but they will burn in hell for eternity and never escape eternal justice. And that should help you sleep well at night, knowing that bad people may escape this life, but they will never escape the afterlife. And it is hard to help a kid whose parents are doing this, particularly in a time of COVID when you're not in school and teachers can't see the signs. But this is increasingly happening with outside of families. It is young kids who are being lured in across the internet by people purporting to be friends who who either introduce them to sex or to drugs or to both and then put them in situations where they feel like they can't escape. And the only way to fight this up front is for you to start educating your kids and to make sure your kids know what's going on. Now, for those of you who are just just wondering what on why is he talking about this, a, a, a hotel in Atlanta is being sued in federal court for its employees collaborating with human traffickers who were doing this to a 15-year-old girl at the hotel. This comes on the heels of another federal lawsuit where one of the children escaped and told the front desk employees what was going on and the hotel employees called the traffickers, not the police, because they were being paid. This stuff can't live in the shadows. And, and I don't mean to be off-putting or not entertaining on the radio, or I don't mean to be disturbing you, but uh, you, you got to talk about this stuff. But we don't talk about this stuff because it is disturbing. We don't talk about this stuff because it is depraved. We don't talk about this stuff because we don't want bad stuff in our brains. And But they feed on, on our unwillingness to talk about it. They feed on our unwillingness to engage with our kids, and this happens all the time. Y'all, I know people this has happened to. I have interviewed people this has happened to. I have heard the stories from parents whose kids were lured away and introduced to sex and drugs and then felt like they couldn't get out of the situation. And the parents had to rescue them and make sure the kids knew they were still loved and get the kids all sorts of therapy because of it. This happens. This happens. And the only way to stop it from happening is to educate yourselves and your kids and your families to be engaged with it and to make sure that your life with your kids in the real world is more dynamic and fruitful and wonderful than the life they build online with strangers because increasingly that's where the connections are made to lure your kids into something that they think they can't escape from and may not be able to escape from. And so you got to be engaged and pay attention. I have to acknowledge uh, I'm having a real hard time wanting to to watch the Democratic convention, and I feel like I need to. So years ago, I, I, when I was at CNN, Sam Feist was the political director. The, the man is just brilliant when it comes to politics. He knows his stuff. He's now the, the Washington bureau chief for CNN. He's in charge of planning all their debates and their political coverage. He's a fundamentally a good guy. 
Uh, and it, it's why I see it's people like that, that, that lead me to still, even though I just, I despise the stuff that comes out of Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon and the like, um, there are still good people at CNN who really just care about the news. And, and Sam is one of those guys. And when I was at CNN one time, I, there was a Republican debate. I didn't have to be on to talk about it. And I just mentioned offhandedly, it was a waste of time. It was like the 2000th Republican debate. I saw no value in it and I wasn't going to watch it. And Sam emailed me and he said, you shouldn't say this publicly. Whether you mean it or not, whether you watch it or not, you shouldn't say it publicly because you're going to at some point be called on to comment on something that happened at this debate or something related to this debate. And therefore, you should not say you didn't watch it because even if you go back and watch it, you've already said you're on record not watching it. And so just don't, you shouldn't do that. And, and I took that message to heart. I really did. I, I have I have tried my darndest over the years to not say I haven't engaged. And in fact, there have been times like during the, the Democratic debates this past year, I wouldn't watch them live, but I would go back and watch them just so I could be up to speed with you guys and, and, and bring you the play-by-play, what happened. I did not watch last night's Democratic convention. I did not want to do that to myself. The Braves were playing. I, I went out, and, and Philip, who, who works with me, uh, he and some guys got together for bourbon cigar. We socially distanced. We sat around and shouted at each other from across the yard while we drank bourbon and smoked cigars and discussed the Braves. I, and I just, okay, given the choice of... Bernie Sanders and John Kasich or watching the Braves with bourbon cigars. What what do you choose? What, 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 which one would you have me do? I love y'all. I do. I love you guys. I, I couldn't do what I do, but for having a group of people we call listeners, and that would be you. By the way, Lister John Brewer is listening right now from Helsinki, Finland. He sent me an email. He, he's listening on the live stream at theresurgent.com from Helsinki, Finland. Good for him. I need committed listeners like that. And y'all, I, I try to be a committed host. I do. But I, th- there are some bridges too far. And I would rather like a, a a dual colonoscopy than watching John Kasich and Bernie Sanders first tell me that jo- that Joe Biden is not going to be a radical and then tell me that Joe Biden has has bought the entire radical agenda. That was the most dis- dis- discombobulated thing last night. I did, see I did go back and I had to had to do I watched the Michelle Obama speech which was just trashing Trump. It was designed to provoke him. It worked. He's out there bad mouthing her today. But you had John Kasich starts the thing as Hi, Republicans. I'm John Kasich, and I suck, and I want you to know that Donald Trump is president today because I wouldn't get out of the way and, and spent all of my money that I raised attacking conservatives so so Donald Trump could get ahead. And only after I drove Ted Cruz from the race did I get out of the race, hoping the Republicans would hand it to me, and they didn't. So I hate you all, and you're terrible people, and I want you to vote for Joe Biden, who's not a radical like Bernie Sanders, and he won't destroy the country like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders would. That was, that was John Kasich's message. And then an hour later, you get Bernie Sanders saying, Joe, Joe Biden's great. Joe Biden's adopted our agenda. Joe Biden's going to be the far leftist president we've ever had. I mean, okay, for Bernie Sanders to lecture us on Donald Trump being authoritarian when this guy honeymooned in the Soviet Union as a guest of the Soviets is a little bit too rich for me. And nobody seemed to want to point that out. Um, so let me be the one to point it out. That's a bridge too far for me to believe Bernie Sanders lecturing anybody on totalitarianism when he loves totalitarianism. I mean, the man honeymooned to the Soviet Union. 
I see the Democrats and members of the media are still pursuing this conspiracy theory about the post office. It is a conspiracy theory. You you do need to know um, the president is not sabotaging the post office to win the election. If you believe that, uh, you believe a conspiracy theory like the QAnon people. And I realize you're just as as committed to it like religious fundamentalists are. uh, But it's still a conspiracy theory nonetheless. It doesn't matter that blue check marks on social media believe it. It's a nutty conspiracy theory. Now, we need to move on to good news. I, I have good news for all of you. I mentioned yesterday that, uh, no, I guess I didn't mention it yesterday because I wasn't here. I wasn't here yesterday because of what I mentioned in the first hour. I'm sorry. It's it's one of those days. We've decided we're going to send our kids back physically to school. Um, If I had my druthers, I would send them, I would let them do remote learning the first month. And let all the other people be the experiment. Um, our school option is you go the first quarter online or in person. It's not month to month. Some schools are doing month to month. I wish our school was doing month to month um, because I, I would like to to take a wait and see approach. But there is hope uh, on the horizon. And this is notable. It is good news. It is something that all of you should should rejoice in that the New York Times has the most comprehensive data of the viral spread. And Georgia is officially in the list of states where the virus is decreasing. Now, Georgia leads in uh, the death spike, per capita deaths in Georgia, are increasing more than anywhere else. That is to be expected. It is to be expected because deaths are about a two-week lagging indicator. Georgia had a big spike, and uh, so now the death toll is increasing in Georgia. And the media is fixated on the death toll in Georgia because, as I told you weeks ago, they would because there really isn't anything to tell you of, of bad news to blame on Brian Kemp about the viral spread in Georgia. The virus continues to decline in Georgia. Now, Uh, cases in Georgia per capita, per capita in Georgia, uh, cases are still bad, um, uh, per 10, uh, but per hundred thousand, uh, Georgia, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Georgia is number eight, uh, per hundred thousand in terms of total cases, Georgia is, um, in the last several days, Georgia is not terrible. It's, it's number four. Um, per hundred thousand in the last, uh, in the last seven days though, Georgia's number two, but, 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 but this, this is the point. Georgia is now on the decline list. There are hot spots in the state, but Georgia is declining. Georgia is trending in the right direction, and you don't have to take my word for it. If you text the word data to 33777, you can see it for yourself. Georgia is declining. Florida is declining. Texas is is doing great. Um, let me give you the, the, the number of states where new cases have plateaued and are staying or holding. Actually, you know what? Let me give you the states where the cases are increasing. 
North Dakota, Kansas, Hawaii, Illinois, Delaware, South Dakota, and Vermont. That's where cases are increasing right now. But uh, let's give let me give you the states where recent growth has slowed so that these states are not necessarily on a downward trajectory per se, but are definitely where cases have plateaued and are not increasing. Texas, Idaho, California, Missouri, Iowa, Kentucky, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Indiana, Virginia, Minnesota, Montana, Washington, D.C., Rhode Island, Michigan, Wyoming, West Virginia, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Maine. In those states, cases are holding steady. What about places where the virus is actually in decline? That would be Georgia, Florida, Nevada, Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Arizona, New North Carolina, Alaska, Utah, Maryland, Ohio, Washington, New Mexico, Colorado, and New Hampshire. Three, six, nine, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That's 20 states. There are only now, and let me include the territories here as well, uh, Virgin Islands, North Dakota, Kansas, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Illinois, Delaware, Guam, South Dakota, and Vermont. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10. And that includes the territories of Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Everywhere else is either heady, holding steady or headed downward. And this comes, George's news, George's news now comes after schools have started reopening. Two weeks after schools started reopening, some of them in person, some of them with headlines, global headlines, crowded hallways in North Paulding High School, crowded hallways in Cherokee County schools, classes quarantined, schools shut down for weeks on end because of the virus. And yet statewide, statewide, doing good. Statewide. We're doing okay. Statewide, we're headed in the right direction. And nobody, no, notice that nobody seems to be wanting to talk about this. Uh, if it, you've, you've heard the saying, I'm sure, if it bleeds, it leads. And to a degree, that's true. The news profits from the bad news because you tend to turn in to see the, the shooting last night, the robbery last night, the bad thing that happened in your neighborhood. Uh, big story. I just, just pulled up local local TV station here in middle Georgia. The, the, the number one story, man found with gunshot wound at Macon Bibb Fire Station. Right underneath that, Bibb deputies find missing woman unharmed and Mercer students head back to in-person first day classes. Number one, though. Man found with gunshot wound at Macon Bibb Fire Station. Let's see. Let, let, let's, let's go to another one. Uh, University of North Georgia officials condemn student party. That's another headline. Oh, look. Hey, the Eric Erickson Show broadcasting on, on this. Look at that one. Let, let's, go to, let's go to the Savannah Morning News. What, what's your number one? Um, Savannah Public Schools will be thousands short of its order of computer devices when classes start. Bad news. Informative news, but bad news. It's what people pay attention to. It's what people want to pay attention to. They want to be prepared. You don't want to be entertained by your local newspaper. You want to be prepared for the bad news. You want to be prepared for the crime. You want to be prepared for the virus. You want to be prepared for the collapse of society. 
It's why survival food is a thing. Do you know why I got asked to, I, 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 momentary note here. If you would like to advertise statewide on this here radio program, email me, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at theresurgent.com. We would love to have additional advertisers on this program. Do you know why? Because right now we've got three advertisers and they help us meet costs, but I would love to boost that because I would actually like to get paid one day for doing three hours of radio a day. We'd love to have your advertisement. But I declined an advertisement for survival food. So that's right, survival food. I may be desperate for cash and I may want to be filthy rich one day, but not by selling survival food. But survival food is a thing. Do you know why? Because people are prepared for the end of the world. They're convinced the end of the world is coming. It's why gun sales are going through the roof. I am not going to sell survival food. I'm sorry. I would love, love to have more advertisers on this program, but I'm not selling vaping products and survival food. Just, I'm just, I got some standards, folks. I got some standards. Legalized pot, maybe I'll say. <laughs> Uh, survival of CBD stuff. Nope. I, I, I don't, I don't want to do it. I, I, I just, I don't, maybe if I get really desperate, I will, but I don't, but, but uh, that stuff resonates with a lot of people these days and buy gold, gold uh, in, in the podcast, there's a gold sponsor, but and you know why this stuff resonates? Because people believe that they need to control their own destiny. So they tune into the news to see what is bleeding in the headlines so that they can be prepared for that bad news to be able to process it and anticipate it. And they don't really turn to the news for the joyous news. I get told all the time uh, with my other radio show, we, we need to do the positive, upbeat stories. People don't actually turn in for positive. They say they want the positive, upbeat story. But if you give people positive, upbeat stories, do you know what happens psychologically to people? They believe you're not telling them the truth. Because people deep down, we're all sinners and we're all pessimists. And we all believe, every single one of us believes that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Every single one of you right now believes it. Even you optimists. You know the only difference between an optimist and a pessimist these days? With an optimist, you believe that the path to hell is smooth and you're not going to have to step on a rock. And with a pessimist, you believe you're going to trip and stumble all the way to hell these days. That's the only difference. But we're all, we all believe the world is, is, is destined for the ash heap. Uh, Jesus is coming back and, and, and the world is going away. We, we all know that. The, even the atheists believe that, I mean, the worms are going to eat their bodies. That's why you never meet a happy atheist because they know this is it. This is all they've got. They got to put up with Donald Trump as president and the worms are going to eat their body. To heck with this. They're miserable people. And so we go to the news to anticipate the misery and then we go live our lives. And so if you just give people all the happy news, oh, the unicorns came out today. They farted rainbows across middle Georgia and the whole world got to see completed unicorn rainbow farts. They would say, well, I mean, the, those unicorns, what, why are they there? It, it must be a sign of the apocalypse. Why are they telling us about the apocalypse? If the unicorns are here. We're all going to die. Where's the news about everybody dying? That's the way people's minds work. But on occasion, bringing this all home now because I'm a professional, on occasion, it's worth savoring the good news. And believe it or not, despite everything you're hearing about outbreaks at schools, about, about uh, parties where people are getting the, the virus, you know, the, the, the unicorn, uh, the unicorn, <laughs> I got unicorn farts on the brain. Um, the, the University of North Carolina, speaking of farts, um, has decided it's got to shut down all of their in-person learning. 
And the reason is because three fraternities had parties and the virus went gangbusters at the parties when they told the fraternities not to have parties. And you know the reaction. The reaction actually infuriates me as as someone who believes in personal responsibility. The reaction infuriates Well, we knew this was going to happen. Those college kids can't help themselves. It's like the University of Georgia advising kids if you're going to have sex, wear a mask and, and do positions where you're not having to face each other. I kid you not. That was their official guidance from the university. Somebody put that in Adobe InDesign and printed it up, and they've had to memory hole it. And they just want you to know kids are going to be irresponsible, and it's all, your, it's all the governor's fault for allowing people to be irresponsible. It's all Brian Kemp's fault that these kids in North Carolina went to parties at frat houses, didn't wear masks, and they all got the virus. And now they're having to shut down the school system and go to remote learning. People think that's what's going to happen, except in Georgia, we've had the schools open now for a couple of weeks for in-person learning. We've had the virus spreading in these schools. We've had schools shut back down. We've had classrooms quarantined. And yet the day-to-day numbers continue to show the virus is declining in the state to the point that the New York Times, which has refused for weeks on end to add Georgia to the list of states where the virus was declining, despite the fact that clearly the virus has been declining, they finally had to do it. The evidence is incontrovertible that the the uh, the cases are declining in Georgia. The high in Georgia was July 11th for the seven-day moving average. The seven-day moving average on July 11th was 4,336 estimated cases in the moving average. Do you know what it is now? Do you, do you have any idea what it is now? 2,384. Now, of the actual high days, we had on July 6th 5,800 new cases of the virus that day. And you know where we are now? In the moving average, that ends on August 3rd, 2,799. But I can sneak forward a few days into the moving average and tell you that on August 10th, there were only 2,274 cases. What about on the date of reporting? On the date of reporting, the high was July 24th. Based on the date of reporting, remember the date of reporting includes a bunch of people and it's backlogged and it's resorted based on when they actually had their test. But on the date of the report coming in, the high was July 24th, 4,825 confirmed cases on July 24th. Do you know what the number was yesterday, August 17th? 1,843. Last week, it was 3,316. And again, the high was 4,825. Y'all, we're headed in the right direction in Georgia. We're headed in the right direction. The number of people hospitalized is declining. The number of daily deaths is declining. The number of cases is declining. The number, every all of everything Everything, all, everything is headed in the right direction. If it bleeds, it leads. The fact that Georgia is now off the list of of states where the cases are increasing is no longer news worth printing because it's not bad news and people go to the news for bad news. But this is good news and it's worth putting at the top of every newspaper and the lead of every, every uh, news network.
that Georgia has been removed from the list of states where the virus is declining or stable and is officially now on the list of states where the virus is in decline. Could that change? Yes, you're absolutely right. It could change. You know, one of the data metrics you got to pay attention to is the rate of transmission. Where is the rate of transmission in Georgia? If it is below one, that is good news. If it is above one, that is bad news. And there actually is a website you can go to where you can find the information. And do you know what Georgia's number is? It is 0.96. It has held relatively stable for weeks on end at 0.96. That means the virus is declining in the state of Georgia. Objectively, by the metrics, the virus is declining. So be at peace. We're headed in the right direction. Why? Not because the governor forced you to do things, but because he told you what you should do, and most people did listen. And that's good news. Except you can't right now. Why? Because we'll be out of time here soon. That's why. Do you know what a Dorico is? I think I'm saying that right. Dorico, Dorico. It is a land hurricane. It is essentially a, a massive hurricane that blows through the upper Midwest. It happens on occasion, and one happened in Iowa. And it has done hundreds of millions of dollars of damage in Iowa. And have you heard about this on TV? My, my, my point of raising this is um, you've had this land hurricane, the Dorico. It's done massive damage. The president has had to declare a, a state of emergency, a, a, a federal funding. He's gotten FEMA involved. Uh, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, the Southern Baptist Mission Board and the light, they're all rushing uh, Walmart and others there to help. It, it really is so bad that there are parts of Iowa where the Waffle House would be shut down. That's how bad it is. Uh, and uh, there you've gotten very little media coverage of this. It reminds me several years ago, there were those floods on the Cumberland River through Nashville uh, really caused massive amounts of damage, and you got like uh, a mention in the press, and that was it. President Obama never went to check it out, nothing. And that's because the national media is so D.C., New York-centric. If you don't actually have it happen there, it doesn't happen. And they've missed an entire story that I think is compelling and captivating uh, with what's happened in Iowa. Particularly, Iowa is a swing state. It's a competitive state. It's an election year. They could be paying attention to this, and they're not. By the way, there's increasing skepticism that the Democrats will win Iowa. Jody Ernst, the Senate Republican incumbent, is behind right now but not by much, and it looks like she's gaining ground and the president is gaining ground, and perhaps they don't want to cover Iowa because it might actually help them even further, the Republicans, gain ground. But if, if they're not going to, if they're not going to cover a massive storm that has leveled part of a state that is not New York or Washington, what other stories out there is the media choosing to ignore? I, I got to imagine there are a lot of stories out there that they are ignoring, including political stories, like, for example, accurately reflecting what's going on with the riots and protests in Portland, Oregon, and elsewhere. The media is so in the tank these days for the Democrats, it is harder and harder to figure out what's going on in the world. And unfortunately, the people who are filling the vacuum are a bunch of cr uh, cringy, freak conspiracy theorists on the right who have no more interest in telling you the truth than the media does. That's why you got me here to narrate and navigate for you. Now that's a parking spot.
Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.